Well, good evening, Summit Church. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it really is great to have you with us here tonight. As Brian said, we are in the book of 1 Peter uh, in the Trial and Triumph series. Now, you know, one of the things that we all have in common tonight, uh, if you are a Christian, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're still trying to answer that in your life and figure some of those things out. Um, One of the things that we all have in common, regardless of what you believe, is that we've all had certain uh, seasons in our life, we've all had certain experiences in life where life has not gone according to plan. I think we can probably all agree on that, right? There, we've all uh, be able to test, can attest to the fact that life has not always gone according to plan. There are so many times in our lives that we see so many unplanned changes occur. In fact, none of you could probably write your own story, because there are so many things that there is, it's impossible to predict uh, and to see coming in your life. Your life has been filled with so many changes, things that you're not prepared for, things that you could not even possibly predict, because our lives have not gone according to plan. Last month probably didn't go according to plan. Probably for some of you, last week didn't go according to plan. Our stories are filled with so many, I see people like nodding right now, like yes, last week was terrible. Our stories are filled with so many twists and turns, some which are trivial, some which are so life-altering that in the end our lives can be completely changed forever because of them. In fact, you know, I can remember one of the most life-shaping experiences uh, in my own life was during college, my very first semester. Uh, I was in a class called University 101, which is a class designed to help transition students into the college environment and, uh, and offer new perspectives, new ways to think about uh, different subjects, new ways to look at life uh, through the lens of a college student. And, uh, and I remember uh, one day going to class, and we had this uh, basically class exercise where the purpose of this exercise was to help see where different students um, stood on different issues, uh, political issues, social issues, religious, philosophical issues. And, uh, and the exercise involved us, we were sitting at our desk, and our professor would read a statement about a particularly polarizing issue, abortion, homosexuality, religion, faith in God, all kinds of different uh, polarizing issues. He would read a statement, and after reading this polarizing statement, he would say, now if you agree with me, go to the left side of the classroom. If you disagree, go to the right. And so we would all stand up from our desk and kind of shuffle around and make our way over to one side of the classroom or the other. And I can still remember to this day that, that feeling in my stomach as after he would read this statement, I would get up and I'd just kind of shuffle over to one side of the classroom uh, to look up and only realize that I was the only person on this side of the room. And the, the professor, he would just very simply declare, defend your position. And, I, and you can just imagine what this must feel like. You know, I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm looking over, and there's like 25 other, uh, you know, intelligent, passionate people united against me. And I'm standing here just thinking, you know, as that feeling in my stomach is turning even more, getting worse and worse, I'm thinking, what are they going to do to me? Like, how is this going to turn out? Because there's no way that this could even possibly turn out well. And the reality is, I really don't think, even looking back today, that there's any way that I could have been prepared for what was actually going to happen. Because for the next two hours, student 
after student after student shared their stories, regardless of the topic we were discussing at hand. And every single story had a common thread woven through each of them. Every story started something like this, that, you know, at one time in my life, I believed that. At one time in my life, I was taught to believe that. At one time in my life, I I wanted to believe that. But then I grew up, and then I was enlightened, and then I went to you know, school, and I had this class, or I had this professor, or I learned this, or, or I even just saw uh, you know, a group of Christians that seemed so hypocritical. Or I had a pastor from back home, and he slept with some woman. Or I had another person in my life abuse me, and I just can't trust that anymore. I can't look at that and think that is trustworthy. And so I've walked away. I've walked away from my beliefs, I have walked away from my stance, I have walked away from my faith, and now I stand over here. You can imagine what that must feel like for two hours as I just stood there. It was actually a very profound experience in my life. Ten years later, I can still remember that very day. Just listening quietly after story, story after story after story was told. I can remember that day, just leaving class after class was dismissed, walking through our campus back to my dorm. And as I was walking back to my dorm, I just remember thinking, is that going to be my story one day? Is that going to be my story one day? Will there come a point in my life when the circumstances around me, when things that are happening in the world, will they just turn to me and will I just, just turn away from those things? Will I walk away from my beliefs, from my stance, from my faith? And everything that I've held always to be true. Will that be my story one day? You know, every single one of us goes through certain experience, certain seasons in life that, that shake us, that cause us to question, that cause us to doubt, that cause us to lo- lose hope, that literally shake the foundation upon which we stand and force us to ask some questions about the most serious things that we know to be true in our lives. Every single one of us at some point in our lives has experienced that type of season. Maybe some of you are even experiencing that right now. Maybe at some point in your life, you found yourself in a really abusive relationship. Or maybe you found yourself in just a really unhealthy work environment with a boss that treated you so poorly. Maybe you found yourself in the middle of a medical issue that seemed so life-threatening. Or you just found yourself in a position that you knew regardless of what you actually believe, that you were going to cry out to God and say, God, I need some help right now because I don't know what to do next. And if you don't show up and if you don't reveal yourself, I'm just walking away from this. All of us, regardless of what we believe, have come to that point at some point in our lives or we will come to that point where our faith is questioned and we come face to face with the realities of what we think we believe. Our lives are filled with seasons like that, seasons that test our faith question our hope, raise our doubts, and make us truly wonder, is what I believe really true? Is this really, really true, what I believe? And that's exactly why Peter's words are so helpful for us tonight. Because if you remember, Peter is writing to a group of people. Some of them are uh, seasoned Christians. Some of them uh, are brand new Christians. Some of them probably are still trying to figure out what they believe. But these are people that are like us are going through different trials in life. They are experiencing the hardships of life. They are suffering and Peter is going to write them and encourage them. 
and say that I know you're struggling and I know you're going through some hardships right now, but you need to have hope. So Peter tonight is writing to all of us who have at some point or will at some point struggle to maintain hope. And here's what Peter's going to do, actually. He's going um, to warn us. He's going to warn us of two temptations, two temptations that we will all face in the midst of life's trials. The first is a temptation of the mind, and secondly, a temptation of the heart. A temptation of the mind and a temptation of the heart. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to verse 13. That's where we're going to start this evening by looking again at verse 13. Read that with me. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Peter's going to do. He's shifting away um, from sounding kind of like a, uh, uh, just a really sensitive friend. I know you're having a hard time. I know you're struggling. I know this is really hard right now. He's kind of shifting away from uh, a sensitive friend to more like a concerned parent or even a coach. Because here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, okay... This is what we're going to do. It's time to get up. It's time to move forward. Here is the next step. And what he's going to say to us is so important because the first thing he says is that when you start to experience suffering and when you are experiencing trials in life, your mind, that is how you think and what you think about and what you believe, your mind is the first thing that will be attacked by the enemy. Your mind is the first thing that will be attacked by the enemy. In fact, he'll say that there is actually a special connection between our mind and our hope. There's a connection between our mind and our hope. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it a little bit differently than we tend to use it today. Because when we use the word hope, we say things like, you know, I hope hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope she says yes. Or I hope Peyton Manning doesn't, you know, ruin another vertebrae in his neck this season. You know, the, when we use that word, we just kind of, it's just, you know, groundless, wishful thinking. It's naive optimism. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it in a much different way because the Bible uses the word hope to refer to our trust, our affections, our faith, and those things that we are confident to be true. Basically, the word hope is a combination of that which we know to be true and what we build our lives on because of it. That which we know to be true and what we build our lives on because of it. Essentially, as followers of Jesus, we put our hope in God. So we have mentally uh, concluded that God is real, that God is good, that we can trust Him, that He will not leave us nor forsake us. And we put our faith in Him. We put our hope in Him. We believe these things to be true. But uh, inevitably and invariably at some point in your life, all Christians at some point um, will begin to lose hope in the midst of life's trials. When you begin to encounter hardship, when you begin to suffer, you will be tempted to believe something else. Your mind will begin to wonder. Your faith will begin to dissolve. And when God appears silent, you're going to think He must be absent. When God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, you're going to be tempted to think he must not exist. And if God isn't needing to do what I need God to do right now, then there really must not be a God who cares about me. And our faith begins to fade and our hope begins to wander away. And it's awfully difficult to live without hope, isn't it? 
In fact, even uh, this, this past week, I was at our new city group gathering uh, in the Cole neighborhood, which if you're not a part of a city group, you should definitely come check ours out on Wednesday night. Uh, it's at my house just a few blocks from here. We have a great time. And uh, just a few weeks ago, we were gathering there. We were on my back patio eating dinner. It was a beautiful night, just having great conversation, great food. And we just began talking about our own personal experience with hope and despair. Our own personal experiences with hope and despair. And uh, Emily, one of the girls in our group, she began to share a little bit about her job, which if you know Emily, you know she kind of has a unique job. Emily is a death investigator. It's just like CSI Denver. And, uh, and so unlike most of us, uh, you know, who it's, it's pretty rare for us to actually encounter death in our life. Uh, for Emily, you know, it's a day-to-day, and she faces it every single day. She comes face-to-face with death every single day. And consequently, she also, um, unfortunately, sees a lot of victims of suicide. And as she was just kind of sharing about what that's like to uh, encounter a victim of suicide and, and work a suicide case, she actually made a really profound statement. It was actually so helpful. I actually wrote it down during the middle of our city group because she said, uh, in those moments when you are working a suicide case, uh, you come face to face with the very real effects of someone who has completely lost hope. Someone who has experienced such an overwhelming degree of despair that they literally can no longer continue living. You know, the more I thought about that and reflected on it later that night, the more I realized you really just can't live without hope. You, you can't. You can't live without hope. You might need food, water, and shelter to survive, but you need hope to live. When you stop hoping, you stop caring, you stop trying, you stop learning, you stop repenting, you start dying. You've got to have hope. Specifically, where you, hope, where you fix your hope, that's what Peter's going to say here, where you fix your hope, it makes all the difference. It makes the difference between life and death. And anything other than God that we put our hope into will lead to destruction. It will never truly satisfy us. In fact, the Bible teaches us over and over and over that everything else will lead us into temptation. And the temptation of our mind will be where our hope will begin to be lost. The temptation of our mind is where our hope will begin to be lost. And here's what Peter's going to do for us. Peter gives us two really practical steps in fighting that temptation of our minds. He's going to give us two practical steps to fight that temptation of our mind and, and, and successfully set our hope on Jesus Christ. The first one is found there in verse 13. 13. Look at that again with me. Verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. That's the first step. Prepare your minds for action. Now, some of you may have a little footnote following that phrase in your Bible, and that's because the original phrase didn't actually say preparing your minds for action. Uh, That's just an English paraphrase of what originally originally said, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't really use the word loins anymore. I don't think we do, at least. Um, Some of you are probably wondering, do I have loins? Where exactly are my loins? Uh, I'm not going to even like, get into that. I'm not going to try to use that in a sentence. It might just get awkward. Um, but really what Peter's doing here is he's using a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's kind of a call to action. Probably the most uh, you know, comparable thing we have today is roll up your sleeves, put your mind to work. What he's saying is this, this is not a time to sit idly by. If you remember a few weeks ago, we, we said uh, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are actually in exile in a foreign land. 
And here, you know, if, if you're in exile in a foreign land, Peter here is saying that you cannot just sit idly by. You have got to put your mind to action. You cannot be naively unaware of the environment around you. You cannot allow your mind to not be prepared for action. So the question for you tonight is, first of all, how are you currently actively or proactively preparing your mind for action? How are you right now preparing your mind for action? Are you filling your mind with the wisdom and truth of God? Are you filling your mind with truth? What are you reading right now? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Who influences uh, the way that you think? Who shapes the way that you learn? And one of the things that we really love to do is always just make recommendations on great books to read. We're actually selling books right now in the very back of our room that you can buy. These are great books filled with the wisdom of God to help prepare your mind for action. Our city groups, those exist to help you think rightly about the circumstances of your life, the decisions that you make, and the things that you come and encounter with every single day. That's why our city groups exist to help you think rightly, to prepare your mind for action. You should be able right now to be able to look at the person to your left or to your right and be able to say, this is how I prepare my mind for action. This is how I'm doing this right now. I'm reading these books. I'm listening to these podcasts. I'm having these conversations with these people. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying to God with other Christians who love Jesus. That is how you prepare your minds for action. You need to be able to, to tell people that. You need to be able to do that in your own life. I have a friend right now who, uh, a great friend, he's, he actually, every single morning, my phone blows up with a string of text messages of the Bible passage that he is studying for that day. A string of messages just letting me know, I am fixing my mind. I'm preparing my mind for action. You need to prepare your mind for action. That is the first step that you take to be able to set your hope on Christ. Peter gives us a second warning here and a, a second way to prepare. Verse 13, he says, Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Do not let any substance, any person, anything take control of your mind. Do not let any person, any, any substance, or anything take control of your mind. Here's the thing. Almost every sin in life will always begin with a battle of belief. Almost all sin that you encounter in your life will first start in your mind. Before you sin sexually, before you look at porn or cheat on a spouse, or just do something you know you're not supposed to do, you first buy into a lie that, you know, this isn't so bad, or I'm only going to do this once, or I just really need this right now, or this is just the way that I'm wired, or this isn't going to hurt anybody else. Your mind has been taken captive by those lies. And as your mind has been taken captive by those lies, you begin to give in to these actions. Occasionally looking at porn then becomes dull as your mind becomes increasingly perverted. And you must resort to more devious and more devious porn that you're looking at hours on end until you can't even look at a woman on the street without fantasizing about her naked. Before you get drunk, you buy into the lies that in order to have fun, you've got to be wasted. Or you buy into the lies that, uh, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, I just like to have a good time. Or my drinking buddies are the ones who really understand me and really care for me, and this is just how we hang out. You have been taken captive by lies. Your mind has been taken captive. And just, just, and just uh, to be able to sustain that, you create a false utopia to mask the hopelessness of your mind. You begin 
You know, what goes from uh, occasional drinking on the weekends goes to excessive drinking throughout the week until you're drinking in the afternoon and then the very first thing that you're reaching for in the morning is a bottle. Your mind has been taken captive by lies and you are no longer sober-minded in more ways than one. Are you believing lies that take control of your mind? Are there people or substances in your life that control the way you think. The best way to answer that, if you're not able to answer that yourself, is to have other people in your life who will come alongside you, who love you and care for you and want your best, and, and have them speak into your life truth. You know, you'll have people that come along and say, you know what, I, I'm just noticing some of your behaviors, the way that you think, the way that you're responding to these things, and it seems like you're really being influenced by her, or you're really being led astray by him, or you're being really controlled by this, and you need to stop. If you don't have friends in your life that are willing to tell you you need to stop, you need to find people that will truthfully come alongside you, care for you, and love you. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope on Jesus, on Jesus Christ. And those are the first two steps of really being able to set our hope on Him. That's the first temptation that we will all face, though. A temptation of the mind in the midst of life's trials. However, Peter says there's a second temptation. There's another temptation that we're all going to face, and that's the temptation of the heart. Look at verse uh, 14 again with me here. Verse 14 says, Obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here's what Peter is saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the human heart by, by its very nature, has certain cravings. The human heart has certain cravings, desires, or, or passions. That's the word that he uses here. And because these passions within our heart are so strong, they will do whatever it takes to be fully satisfied. Now, here's the kind of the, the irony in this. Um, and if you're a parent, you probably uh, have already recognized this, but, you know, the things that our two-year-old hearts crave usually are the same exact things that our 22 or 32 or 42-year-old hearts crave. Acceptance, approval, attention, appreciation. What Peter is saying here is that in your former life, before you met Jesus, before you put your faith in God, you sought to satisfy your heart's cravings with empty alternatives. You gave your heart away to whatever would satisfy its immediate need for attention, approval, appreciation. Regardless of how short-lived it was, regardless of how immature it may have been, regardless of how painful it may have been, in your former way of life, you were willing to give your heart away to whatever would satisfy its cravings. And there's no other way for Peter to say it except for you were ignorant. You were just really ignorant. And what he's not saying here, he's not excusing us from our sin, saying, well, like they were ignorant, they didn't really know better. He's saying, no, you didn't know Jesus. And consequently, you, because of that, you didn't really know the love of God. You were separated from the love of God. You were separated from Him. You were ignorant to the fact that the only one who could fully satisfy the cravings of your heart was the one who created your heart. And because of that, you were willing to give away your heart to anything and anyone that would try to satisfy it. 
You ran after a prize that would not last. You ran after a thrill that could not be sustained. In your former ignorance, you attempted to satisfy the deepest, most fundamental cravings of your heart with anything and everything the world would offer, only to find those things would never fully satisfy. But here's what Peter does. He warns us again. He's warning us here, uh, trying to prepare us uh, an understanding that there is literally a battle for your heart. There's literally a battle for your heart right now. Two sides that are competing for your affections. Two sides that are trying to pull you in either direction. And what he's saying is, be warned because you will be tempted to return to your former love. Your heart will be tempted to return to its former passions. You know, the thing is, many of you sitting here tonight, many of you probably even realize that. Or you've experienced that at some points in your life. And maybe at some point in your life, you know, you were dating that guy. He was a real jerk. He was really immature. Uh, it was a really bad decision. And now, you know, looking back, you know, you would never, ever, ever, ever consider going back to him. Not in a million years, ever. And you could stand here and say, yeah, I made some bad decisions and I regret that, but I would never, ever go back to that. Or maybe some of you live to tell the tale of how dangerous drugs or alcohol could be in your life. And, and you look back on that lifestyle and you say, yeah, that was a time that was so dark and so dangerous and, and I regret it so much, but I would never, ever, ever consider going back to that in any way. Maybe it was more of an emotional struggle in your heart where you said, there was a time in my life I was just so angry or so jealous or so prideful or so racist or so unstable. But God did a work in my life and he really redeemed that and I would never, ever, ever consider going back to that way of life. What Peter here is doing, he's warning us and he's saying that you, despite how obvious it seems right now, despite how uh, senseless it would be to return to those types of things, you are going to want to go back. At some point, you're going to want to go back. Your heart is going to want to return to those former passions. Your heart is going to want to return to that former ignorance. There will come a time, and you know right now that it does not make any sense, and you're sitting here in these chairs saying, I would never go back to that. What he's saying, though, is as, as time goes by, as months goes by, and when you get to the point where you're just lonely enough or weary enough or stressed out enough, you actually will return. You're going to be tempted to return. At those times in your life when you are that tired or that weary, that lonely, be on guard because you'll want to go back. You'll want to go back to the former passions. In fact, Peter will later write about this very propensity of our hearts. And he'll summarize, actually, the human race by saying that we are like a dog that returns to its vomit. That's what he says about the human race. We're like a dog that returns to its former to its vomit. Now, I'm not a dog owner, um, but I think I could make the guess here that if you had a dog and offered him either a big uh, delicious bowl of kibbles and bits or his vomit, I think we all know where the dog is going, going to go. He's going to go to the kibbles and bits. But that dog gets hungry enough, that dog goes long enough without food, that dog gets tired of waiting, he'll return to his vomit. In the same way, Peter's saying that each and every one of us must be on guard because as disgusting as that seems like to return to our own vomit, if we get lonely enough, if we get tired enough, if we get stressed out enough, if we get isolated enough, if we get sick of waiting, we'll go back. We'll go back to our former passions, 
our former ignorance. We'll start responding to those text messages late at night. We'll stop by the liquor store. We'll call her up. We'll find ourselves at 2 in the morning on Facebook swearing, yeah, I'm over her, as you click through photo after photo after photo after photo, all 537 photos before you realize, yeah, I need some help right now. Because I'm, my heart is being pulled back towards my former love. Here's what scares me. I, I'm afraid that some of us probably don't even realize right now that we are in a battle. Peter says again and again that we have to fight against these things. And it scares me to think that some of you probably think we can just coast. We're doing okay. We don't have to worry about this. I am immune to this. I am not susceptible to falling back, to relapsing back, to pursuing those things that I know are unhealthy. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it's a slow, drawn-out process. Sometimes it's overnight. The decisions that you make will put you back onto a path that can be so destructive for you, for your family, for your career, for your health, for your future. Peter is saying, be on guard. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, because Peter says, you have a choice. It doesn't have to end here. You have a choice. You don't have to keep giving your heart away to those things that will never truly satisfy. But you have a choice and you can just turn to something that is better. You can keep giving your heart away to to someone who will continually crushing it or you can give your heart away to the one who created it. You can turn to the things of this world for attention and approval or you can turn to the God of this universe who loves you and has accepted you unconditionally. You can try to take this all into your own hands and come out on top, or you can submit your life to God and say, you are Lord of my life and I will go wherever you lead. Peter is saying, you have that choice. And that's the very thing we need to hear tonight because God has been gracious to all of us. As Peter later writes in this passage, he's saying, you were living in ignorance. You were living in ignorance But God intervened and he saved you from a life of destruction. He saved you from your bondage. He literally paid the ransom for you, his life for your life, his death for your death, so that you could become a child of God. So that you could become a child of God. Because in the end, our greatest problems, our greatest problems in life are are never problems of relationships, of alcohol and drugs, of uh, medical issues or emotional issues, those are never our greatest problems. Those are just a reflection of our deepest problem. Our deepest problem is always an issue. It always has been. It always will be. It's a sin problem between us and God. And there's only one person that can save us from that problem. That is the perfect death of the eternal Son of God. It's not, it's not a new lifestyle. It's not a new way of thinking. It's not an amount of money that we pay. It's not just a brand new um, church that we attend but it is the blood of Jesus Christ that was needed to be poured out on our behalf. And that blood was precious. That's what Peter writes. He says the blood was precious because it did the one thing that nothing else in this world was ever able to do, and that is close the gap between us and God, reuniting God back to his people, allowing the peace, the love, the grace of God to enter into our lives. 
in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, when you are losing hope and you are beginning to doubt, you must remember that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. And if you are God's child, if we call on him as a father, even in our darkest moments, God will not turn his back on us. Because he is the perfect father who has adopted us and accepted us. And he has rescued us as our sovereign savior. And so in response to that, as a child of God, we have the unique privilege, we have the joy to be able to live our lives for him. Peter's trying to teach us here, saying that the life you live should reflect the God that you love. The life that you live should reflect the God you love. Be holy as God is holy. When we leave this building tonight, when you wake up tomorrow morning, we must realize when it comes to holiness, holiness is not a standard that we reach. It's a reality that we live out. It's a gift given to us by Jesus because Jesus went to the cross as a holy sacrifice and he has given that holiness to us so that we can live in response to that. And that should give us all a tremendous amount of confidence knowing that we are loved, we are forgiven, we are embraced and accepted and we are made holy. Not because of anything we've done, not because of anything that we've earned, but because of what God has done on our behalf. And so tonight as we conclude, I pray that you will just, I pray that you will just examine your mind. I pray that you will examine your heart. Has your mind been taken captive by anything, by lies? Has your heart been pulled away to a former passion or love? Or, can you say that you are continually filling your mind with the wisdom of God and your heart with the love of God as you walk in the light as a child of God? That is what Peter wants for us. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what he's calling us to do as children of God, walking in the light, experiencing the love of God and the peace of God so that we can have hope in the midst of life's trials. Let us pray. Father God, we um, ask you right now, as we just consider the hope that we have, Lord, I pray that we would just continue to fix our hope on you, that we will set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And I know, Lord, there probably are people here tonight who are struggling, who, who have questions, who doubt. And Father, there are people who are here and wondering, uh, can I continue believing. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to empower us with your spirit. You will continue to give us the confidence that we need to follow you. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to change our hearts and our minds, fixing them on you so we can confidently endure the trials of life and come out standing, knowing and professing that you are good, that you are real, that you are loving and kind and gracious. God, we depend on you for the air that we breathe and we realize that we cannot live without hope. Father, I pray that you will fill our hearts with hope, fixing our minds and our hearts on you alone, helping us to trust on you with faith. God, we give you thanks for this evening and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.